This morning is Sunday morning. It is December 10th. Our service this morning is uh, going to be a message called, I Will Not Yield. You ever seen two guys come to a, a rubberneck on the road, and both are looking at the other one? It's almost like a game of chicken, except you're not head on. About that time, my wife's tapping on my shoulder going, honey, 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 and I'm like, eh, you know, I don't hear that, right? And... Uh, my uncle was here yesterday. He said uh, the law of inertia prevails. Of course, he drives a big, 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 big truck. So uh, there are some things in life that you need to yield to. And there are others that is absolutely wrong. One of the problems with this, though, is as we examine the things that Christians face in our lives, some are easy. You know right away, I can't yield to that. For instance, somebody walks up to you and wants to shove crack in your face, right? Even, even the world knows that's wrong crack, by the way, the drug, Matthew. And uh, you, you know that's wrong. But there are other things... <laughs> that's right. There are other things that are not so obvious. And uh, we need to be wise. We need to be smart about these things. I told you to go to First Samuel, so I'm going to read you some things. Yeah, if you want pens and paper or anything, Matt's got them. This is the kind of message where you're going to hear some things you've never heard before, I promise. And that's saying something, because Bert's been in church a while. And I've talked to him, and he's like me. He studies way outside the box. I love him for that. By the way, Bert, you've got quite a few people in your life that you've touched that are here today. Isn't that amazing? When you look around, you know, one of the things that the Word says about a godly man is that his legacy are generations that love the Lord, right down to the third and fourth. And we've got at least three in here today uh, in one family. That's amazing. I want to read you something out of Deuteronomy. Do you remember what last week's message was, by the way, as we get going here? Lions and bears. Okay. Out of Deuteronomy, it says, uh, this is the 20th chapter, first verse. When you go to war against your enemies, you don't have to turn there. Stay in Samuel. I rarely lie when I'm preaching. When you go to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. That phrase, do not be afraid, appears 75 times in the NIV translation of the Bible. You think God's trying to get your attention? Do not be afraid of them. Because the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, will be with you. When you are about to go into battle, the priest shall come forward and address the army. He shall say, Hear, O Israel, today you are going into battle against your enemies. Do not be faint-hearted or afraid. Do not be terrified or give way to panic before them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies and to give you victory. This is a very obvious battle with an enemy in clearly defined lines. Isn't it nice when it's that way? I mean, not very many of you will just turn and run in the face of battle because you were built for something. But it's a whole other thing when you don't even realize where the fight lies in your life. And you begin to stumble in areas and you go, oh, wow, that was the devil that caused that. The first kind of attack is an obvious one, and we're going to talk about that this morning and how to handle it. But then we're going to move on to the harder, the more subtle areas of your life where things creep up on you because of your culture. They creep up on you because of what we're surrounded with. That kind of fight is described in 1 John 5. And I'm going to read you this. And again, you stay in Samuel. 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves His child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God. By loving God and carrying out His commands. By the way, the Hebrew word for commands is mitzvahs. These are the commands that were given to Moses. 
a very Jewish principle, something that the church has lost, is that you can determine whether or not someone is in the faith by what they do. The book of James is a very Jewish book. He was a Jewish man meeting in a Jewish setting with believers and a Jewish king named Jesus. And he said, I will show you my faith by what I do. Hebrews describe their faith in terms of walking in a direction with God. They, deter- they describe repentance with a word called teshuba, which means to make an about face in turn. For them, your relationship with God was action-oriented. It is a very Greek concept for our relationship with God to be creed-oriented. Well, I love God because I believe this, 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 and list our points of doctrine. This didn't exist in the early church. That started to come into being from the 300s on as the Romans took over the church, where your faith became about points of doctrine. Prior to that, it was about your actions with God. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome. You ever heard that the law was just all burdensome, there to bind you up, all of those things? You ever seen a budget before? Clint started a business, and I know one of the things you do when you start business is, is budgeting. And it can be a horrible, frightening thing. I know it was in my house when we first instituted a budget. It's like, oh my God, this is, this is all we can do. This is all we have is these resources. Then after you walk in a budget for a little while, you go, wow, look at what we get to do. <laughs> this is what I have to spend on this, and some find it free. Two people can look at the same thing and see dramatically different things. For instance, stoplights. I see them as demonic interference in my life that must be overcome. I turn a blind eye and put one foot on the floor and uh, praise God, right? My wife sees them as God bringing divine order into my life, you know? Who is right? Who can tell, right? I waited till she left to tell you about that. And His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. Did you hear that? Everyone born of God overcomes the world. But when and where? I mean, will Bert leave this place and in five minutes later the world face Him and it's a chance to overcome? This is a different kind of thing than the first Scripture I read you where you go into battle. Right? When you're in battle, you know there are lines that are drawn. Somebody's in an opposite uniform. But how is it that we overcome the world? In our daily actions by loving God. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. John wrote this in a very unique place in his life. He was in a town called Ephesus that we're going to talk a lot about today. Our goal here, our themes, are that there are two kinds of battles you'll face. One very obvious and one much more subtle. I told you I would go to 1 Samuel, didn't I? I want to read you one verse out of 1 Samuel, a reminder from last week. It starts in verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. For a second, before I take you to ancient Assyria, in the year 700 B.C. and talk to you about a king named Sennacherib, I want you to think about your own lives. How many figurative lions have attacked you at this point? How many things did the devil place in your life that were hurtful, that were painful, that may even have left scars on your life, and yet you still sit here today? The God who has delivered you from the trials of the past will deliver you from the trials of the future. 
Difficult things come our way. They are bound to come. Why did he have you encounter the lions and bears? What did you learn last week? So that you could face the giants that are to come. Everything in your life has built to this place. Everything in your life has brought you to a moment where you had sufficient experience with God to trust Him. The idea is that you had to take baby steps before you could begin to run. Anybody who's ever run in a race knows that it starts with training. A marathon seems like a great idea until the first day you have to go out and begin to train for it. But if you didn't, how well would you do? Well, there's one every year we can see. <laughs> right? Probably not very well. You'll be seeing some of my friends in the medical establishment if you don't train for it. God has given us obstacle to see as an opportunity for Him to overcome in you so that our faith will be increased, so that it will trust. Have you ever prayed for more faith? Acted like it was a supernatural force? I just need more of it. Like, have enough around. Jesus never treats faith this way. Faith means to trust. And when you say you need more faith, what you're saying is I need to trust God more. Trust is a suitable synonym for the word faith. In fact, if you think of a singer not all that long ago before he was caught in England and bathrooms doing horrible things, he sang about you've got to have faith. I don't think he meant trust in God, did he? See, in English, faith can mean so many things. But in Hebrew, it meant to trust God, Right? I want to be a people that everything in my life shows. Whether I understand or not, I trust God. Let me ask you something. When is your trust tested the most? Precisely when you don't understand. I'm not talking about something that is blind. I want to get this clear before I move on. I'm not talking about some mystical power that is blind where you say, well, I trust even though I don't believe and I, or I don't see and I have no reason to believe. I'm talking about a trust that is based on your experience with God over me. You don't understand in one area, you can say, based on what I know about God and what He's done, I trust Him in this situation. Yes. These words cause you to write songs like King David. Many things have I seen, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. You think David could have faith in provision? Sure. At an age of 70 years old, he had seen God provide for him time and time again, and he had learned to trust. Well, we're going to move forward. The first kind of attack, the obvious attack. There was an Assyrian general, a king. His name is Sennacherib. Oddly enough, in his own tongue, this was the name for a moon god. I don't want to get into an extended debate on the subject, but Allah is an Arabic word for the moon god. And to the Hebrews, they used the word Sennacherib. By the way, Hebrews today still use the word Allah for this. Sin. <laughs> Isn't that great? You ever wonder whether it's the same God? Well, the Jews don't think so. Sennacherib's name doesn't just mean the moon God and sin. It means sin multiplied. Okay? Names in the Bible have to do with function. They have to do with description. Let me give you a little bit of history about him. He's from 704 B.C., his reign, to 681. So we're talking about a long time ago. He lived in a place called Nineveh. Does anybody remember Nineveh in the Bible? Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. A guy named Nimrod founded it, whose name meant spear or warrior. Nineveh was a fearsome place, so fearsome that the Hebrew prophet Jonah didn't want to go. And when God said, I want you to go there, and that's happening around 800 B.C., 100 years before Sennacherib, he said, you know, no. <laughs> Thought about it, and 
don't think I'm going to do that. Found himself swallowed by a whale, and amazing how that happens, he uh, changed his mind. (laughs) It's amazing what God will do to get you to change your mind. Next time you read the parable about a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho who was beaten up and robbed, uh, it might change your mind about how you view that. Nineveh was surrounded by a 50-foot wall, 50-foot high wall. It was wide enough to put chariots on. Outside of Nineveh, at the city gates, there was a pile of human skulls a hundred feet into the air. If you have a tendency to think about these biblical places as sand lots full of people with towels and fan belts on their head with camels, that's not true. Don't think about it that way. Nineveh was a metropolitan city for its day, even though it had skulls out front. In fact, there was a library, the largest in the ancient world today, with 22,000 tablets of clay that had writings on them. would be very valuable to historians today if we could get our hands on those things. They tell about times way back even before Noah's flood. But the Assyrians were exceedingly violent in war. Prior to their conquest of Judah that we're going to read about, they come and attack the people of God, which is what our story is about today. They attacked Babylon. Now, you know about Babylon in the Bible. In 586, a Babylonian king named Nebuchadnezzar conquered Israel and conquered most of the known world, the first kingdom to rule the entire globe. Well, this is well before that. Babylon is a juvenile, if you will, learning to flex their muscles, but not yet in their stride. He attacks Babylon and he overcomes. So he takes Babylonians arm breath apart all the way around the city of Babylon, which is present-day Iraq, and he impales them alive so that there would be a message to anybody who ever attacked him of, look what I do to my enemies. That's a pretty fearsome thing, isn't it? He attacked Media, Medes, the Medes, the Persians. That was the second kingdom to rule the world. But again, this is before they reached that place of prominence. And when he does, he forces them to pay heavy tributes and he publicizes it. He sends letters all over the globe. (laughs) I attacked the Medes and now they bribe me every year to keep me from attacking them again. He attacked Egypt and beat Egypt. Everything you've ever seen on the Discovery Channel talks about how advanced the Egyptians were in the ancient days, right? Well, this guy beat Egypt. He attacked many small kingdoms around Israel and he impaled their nobility out in front of the city gates so that people would see what happens when you fight with Sennacherib. Then he would take their kings and he would bind them in chains and send them to the next city that he planned to attack. Right? We're talking about an ugly guy, aren't we? You thought the people you worked with were bad, didn't you? Turn with me to 2 Kings. From where you are in Samuel, you are to hang a right. Be just a couple books over. We're going to be in 2 Kings for just a little while. So it would be worth turning there. If you don't, I'll cry, get my feelings hurt, and run out of here. He sends a letter to a king around 700 B.C. named Hezekiah, who is ruling over the kingdom of Judah that is present in Israel, living in the city of Jerusalem, right where it is today. And because he has been such a fearsome guy, his letter is pretty ugly to Hezekiah. Now, if you had heard, for instance, that the Germans were outside of New York City and you knew about all of the atrocities that they did during World War II, could you be a little intimidated? Yeah. In America, we have this idea that we're beyond being conquered. 
You know, as long as the war is in a foreign place, it's just a means to teach Americans geography. Blow up a few Starbucks and we'll feel differently about that. Interfere with our SUVs and our soccer mom schedule, we'll feel differently about that. But as long as it's in a faraway place, it's just a way to learn. Did anybody know where Qatar was on the map before uh, these problems happened? <laughs> How about any of those stands before the movie Borat came out? Yeah. Y'all have never even heard there is a movie, Borat. Good for you. Second Kings 18. Starting in the 19th verse, we have an ancient letter written to the king Hezekiah from Sennacherib. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? By the way, Hezekiah, when he saw Sennacherib, says, <clears throat> I won't yield. So the king writes this letter. On what are you basing this confidence? You say... I'm sorry, yeah, there we go. You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff, which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. He's saying Egypt's military was so weak that you could only be hurt by them if you leaned on top of a splinter on them. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord, our God, isn't He the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? I don't want to take a lot of time to explain this, but there was a civil war in Israel. Did you know the church has always been fighting? You know, down this road, find me seven different churches who can agree on almost any subject. I was taught in Israel where there are two there are three opinions, and I laughed, you know, <laughs> Those Jews. Then I thought about us. You know? One says you've got to go all the way under the water when you baptize. This says, no, you just pour it on the head. One says you can only do it at 12. Another says, no, no, you can do it to baby. We can't agree on the color of the carpet. That's, we have as many churches as we do today. What, what this king is doing is he has seen Hezekiah following the word of the Lord. God told Hezekiah, I want you to remove all of these places of idolatry, all these places where people are claiming to worship God. Worship supposed to be done at my temple. And he's confused by it. And this foreign king says, if you're claiming to worship your God, isn't this the same king that took down all of those temples to God? Not understanding. Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. This is the general who he sent in his place. I will give you 2,000 horses and put riders on them. How can you repulse one of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen. Then if I just had one officer to send, you guys couldn't. If I gave you horses to come out and fight with us, horses in this day are tanks. Then if I gave you tanks to fight with us, you couldn't even repulse one of our officers. Sound like they're pretty full of themselves, doesn't it? You never met anybody like this, though, have you? Never. No. Furthermore, I have come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord. The Lord Himself told me to march against the country and destroy it. Don't you love this? The enemy will always shift tactics. If he can't intimidate you, he'll begin to question your service to God. Aren't you the one that tore down those altars to God? If he can't then get you to give up, discouraged, and go home, he'll say, well, look, I could give you money. I could give you things. You all remember the book Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody here ever read it? I love the conversation that the old dragon with Christian on his way to the celestial city. He says, hey, why is it you're leaving my kingdom? He said, because I've been called to the celestial city by a better king. 
The dragon says, but I've watched you. You, uh, you don't serve him very well. I remember when you sinned in this way and sinned in this way and sinned in this way. I, I have clung to Pilgrim's response with all of my heart, to Christian's response. He said, yes, <laughs> that's true. All this and much more which you failed to recount. Yet the God I serve is merciful and I will still press on. Since I don't know what it is that stands outside your walls and taunts you. I'm not sure what that is. I don't need to know. I probably couldn't handle it. Don't tell me. Keep it to yourself. But I do know that we serve a God who will meet with you right where you are. There are two kinds of attacks that we're going to study this morning. One comes from outside your walls and the other comes from inside. But let's finish this. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. (laughs) The mighty leaders in Israel, right? Don't talk in a language that the people understand. Because if they get scared, they'll overthrow their leaders. If you don't think that's true, show up at Piccadilly. There is no Piccadilly here. Luby's, right? There will be more pastors eaten this Sunday after church than fried chicken by their congregation. You know, they don't like the decisions their pastor made. They don't like the direction the church is The committees don't think pastors doing a good job. The enemy knows this. He knows how to get us to turn on each other. And so the people are saying, oh, look, don't talk to us in a way the people can understand. Instead, talk to us only in an educated language. Right? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew. He ignored this. Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. When he says the Lord will surely deliver us, this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to the land of your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Except it's not what God told them to do. The enemy can make the grass on the other side look very, very green, and you just have no idea that it is growing over a septic tank. All you can see is the green grass. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, The Lord will deliver you. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamoth and Arphod? Where are the gods of Seraphim, Hena, and Iva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save the land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent. Guys, it was on in this letter to say, Hezekiah, I am personally going to make sure that you eat your own filth and drink your own urine. That's in your Bible. I just didn't read it because that wouldn't be polite, right? That's a letter addressed to a king of a country. How would you respond if you were Hezekiah? Everybody around you has been beaten. Egypt has been beaten. 
Babylon has been beaten. The Medes have been Here's Hezekiah's response. It's in the 19th chapter. It starts in the 14th verse. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim. What did he do with this letter? He took it and spread it out before God. Guys, there are problems come in your life that are so immediate, so intimidating, so threatening, like a report that says your kidneys are shutting down. Like the death of a friend, a loved one, somebody that you love. Something that makes life look hopeless. And maybe everybody around you has cringed in fear. They've all been intimidated to the point where they are beaten before the war begins. And yet Hezekiah, the man of God, took this report and spread it out before God. So often we Christians take our problems straight to a phone. Did you hear what so-and-so said? My God, Patricia, things are so bad at work, you just give me some pity. My God, do you know what is happening to me? Blah, blah, blah. We need to learn to put down that phone. We need to learn to take it to the throne of God. Spread it out. We spend so much time telling God how big our problems are and so little time telling our problems how big God is. We need to start to get the right perspective. This is such an obvious attack. A demonic antichrist-like king standing outside the city of God. All the people huddled together in the safe walls of a church, so to speak. Such an obvious thing. And Hezekiah is the one that is holding fast. Give ear, O Lord. Hear and open your eyes. O Lord, see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Who is He really insulting when the people of God are insulting? Did God call you? Are you bought by Him? Did you come and testify when you got the job that you have now? Look, the Lord gave me a great job. But then the first obstacle you come into, you act like you're all alone in this pursuit. God called us. When we're opposed, it's not just us who are being opposed. It's first and foremost the King that we belong to. The feudal system in medieval Europe was based upon the fact that if you attacked a serf, you were really attacking their lord. That's where we get the English word lord. It means owner and controller. When somebody attacks you, it's as if they were attacking God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. They were not gods, but wood, stone, fashioned hands. Now, O Lord our God, deliver us from His hands so that the kingdoms, all the kingdoms on the earth may know that You alone are Lord our God. He acknowledges that the problem is true. Hey, this guy's beat everybody, Lord. I'm spreading this problem out before You because You're the only one that can do anything about it. Have you never been there before? Have you never taken an inventory of your life and come up short and don't have what it takes Meet this obstacle. I've been there a lot of times right there in that spot praying, Lord, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to handle it. It's a problem that's bigger than me. All I can do is put it before you. That was Hezekiah's response. He spread it out before the Lord. He acknowledged that the problem was true. His motivation was that God would get glory through this problem in some way. Isaiah prophesied. I love Isaiah's prophecy. This is in 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 25. 
Watch this. This is Isaiah speaking as if he were God to the king of Assyria. (laughs) Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. Hey, king of Assyria, do you think you did all of those things without me knowing it? I'm the one that raised you up. Boy, that's a scary thought, that some of the problems in your life may have come from the Lord allowing them to be raised up. Because God gets glory when little boys knock down great big giants. God gets glory when small nations defeat large ones. God gets glory when everybody around you loses trust in Him, but you cling to Him. This is how He gets glory. I picked up a Marine Corps recruitment card today. said, the change is forever. That's their slogan. Semper Fi, always faithful. The change is forever. If only that were true about Christians. We claim to be changed until the stakes are too high. Then we start saying things like, oh, well, when I was in the world, I would have, with a certain longing for Egypt in our hearts. Says, have you not heard long ago I ordained it? In the days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stones. Their people drained of power and dismayed and put to shame. They are like plants in the field, tender green shoots, like grass sprouting on the roof, scorched before it grows. Oh yeah, king of Assyria, you are a bad dude. And I made you that way, is what Isaiah is saying. Verse 27. But I know where you stay. <laughs> I don't know what it's here, but growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, some of my friends from a different part of town would say, Eric, where do you stay? And they meant, where do you live? The God of the universe is telling Assyria, I know where you live, buddy. That could bring your ego into check, couldn't it? There are times we're alone in the safety of our car. Somebody speeds in a rubbernecking situation, cuts right in front of you, right? And you feel so alone, so safe in your little environment. And how you act determines really what is in your heart. But God knows where we live. (laughs) His eye was on us long before we were aware. I know where you stay and when you come in and when you go out and how you rage against me because your rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will make you return by the way that you came. God tells Sennacherib, the guy who is the embodiment of sin multiplied, hey, I heard what you said to my king. That whole urine thing, I'm not pleased. I know where you live. Your insolence against me. Why against God? Because Hezekiah was a king of God's installment. The Bible calls you saints of the Most High God. I know there's whole areas of the world that think that There needs to be a vote in the Vatican for that to happen. But the Bible says that you are saints of God. God considered it insolence against him personally. The last thing that he says, basically, is I'm in control, Sennacherib. I will put my bit in your mouth and steer you the same way that a man steers a horse. I'd be scared if I was Sennacherib at that point. One of the things, though, about insane ambition, about insane narcissism as it blinds you to things that are around you, You can become so in love with the sound of your own voice and your own image that you sit there and starve to death while you look at it. So Isaiah's prophecy basically tells Sennacherib what's going to happen. Hezekiah gets a sign, though. It's a sign that we want to take the rest of our message. The sign is mentioned in 2 Kings 19, starting in verse 30. You with me there? 
Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. I'm sorry, let's start in 1929. This will be the sign for you, Hezekiah, because God has said that He would deliver them. This year you will eat what grows by itself. In the second year, what springs from that? But in the third year, you sow and reap, plant vineyards, and will eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. Forgive me, I'm going to write on the board here. You probably won't be able to read it. My parents teach children with dyslexia and dysgraphia, and I was probably their first guinea pig. Root below does what? Bears fruit above. Y'all keep that in mind. He said, there's going to be a sign to you, King Hezekiah. What is taken root below will bear fruit above. Look at verse 32. We'll finish this story and move on. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with a shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it. For my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a hundred and eighty-five thousand men in the Assyrian camp. Did Hezekiah have to take up a sword? He just had to trust his God. Did any of the people in Israel have to do those abominable things that Sennacherib said? One of the things that I love about this kind of attack is there is the wall separating you from the world. The people of God on the inside of the wall, the pressure from the outside, right? Easy, clearly defined. And what do we do in this? We spread out our problems before God. We trust Him to take care of them and then we wait for His deliverance. Usually the attack is obvious and the resolution is obvious. Wouldn't you say? Hezekiah was a man of faith, nevertheless. I'm not diminishing what he did. But you know, when you've been given more, what's required? More. The more you've been given, the more that is required. The sign for Hezekiah was the root below will begin to bear fruit above. Saints, we profess to have a root in us, a root of faith, something that is growing. But what is on the inside must make its way to the outside. It must eventually begin to bear fruit. What happened in this story was Hezekiah believed in his heart that God would deliver him, and it eventually showed up on the outside. You ever wondered what baptism was? Baptism was an outward sign of something that was supposed to have happened inwardly. You're trying to show everybody about the root in your heart being born above ground, outside. The change that has happened, you're looking for a way to show. Fast forward with me in time. We are now in the first century. The followers of Yeshua, Hamashiach, by the way, we are a different kind of church. That's what this says in Hebrew from left to right, right there. Yeshua, Hamashiach, are on the earth. There's a city called Ephesus. But to really understand the Ephesian city, you have to know the Roman world that it was born in. You just thought Sennacherib was bad. Julius Caesar was the first dictator in Rome. The movie Star Wars is amazingly like Julius Caesar's rise to power. I don't want to quote to you the gospel of Star Wars today, but do you remember how the chancellor was given temporary powers to go settle wars? And then eventually the Senate became a puppet Senate? 
to where he was declared emperor? That is exactly what Julius Caesar did. You can read about it. i got a book out there called The Twelve Caesars. He only reigned until about 44 B.C. And he was killed by some of his closest friends. But when he died, on the day he died, a comet was seen. Now, over the next two years, people theorized as the Roman government was in a state of constant civil war. The friends that killed him fighting for power. But they eventually came to the conclusion that Julius Caesar was divine and issued a proclamation. They hired poets to write about it. Julius Caesar, divine. We watched him ascend into the heavens. Well, that's interesting because the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, book of Luke, all of those texts are written at a place in history. You can think of history as his story. Every time we write the date on a check, we are dating our numbers of years from the beginning of his story. And the place in world history that his story picks up is in the reign of Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar reigned from 27 B.C. to 14 A.D. August means feared one. And since he's the successor to Julius Caesar, Augustus Caesar was called the Son of God. Isn't it just like the devil? During the time period where the true Son of God is going to be born in what is considered to be a manger, we have a Son of God ruling the world in an ivory palace. With the devil, it is always about a counterfeit something that looks the part but can't deliver the fruit. Augustus Caesar was considered to be the Son of God. You're going to love this about the spirit of Rome. The day of his birth was celebrated with 12 days. On the first day of Christmas, my true love said to me, called Advent. Poets proclaimed peace and joy. Augustus is here. Peace and joy to the world. The Son of God is here. Now, does this sound familiar to you? I imagine it does. The slogan, There is no name except Augustus by which men can be saved, was popularized during Augustus Caesar's reign. It can still be found written on coins and buildings in the ancient world today. What do you think the devil was doing? You think he was maybe trying to muddy the waters a little bit? He maintained his own priesthood in his honor, who sold, sold the forgiveness of sins for a price. Wow, history will set you free, won't it? But I didn't want to talk to you about Augustus today. That was Lanyap. Julius Caesar was supposed to be divine. He's living eternal. Y'all don't know what Lanyap is, do you? That's a Louisiana word. It means a little something extra. What in Hebrew? Julius Caesar was divine. On the day that he ascended into heaven, people saw his comet. So Augustus Caesar, the Son of God, there is no name except Augustus by which men can be saved. He's going to bring universal peace to the world that our historians call the Pax Romana. Don't you love that? Okay? Universal peace to the world. There's a problem, though. What happened to Augustus? Yeah, he's dead. <laughs> he died. And somebody else took his place. Tiberius Caesar took his place in 14 A.D. 
and he reigned to 37 A.D. Now, this is a really interesting time in history because we don't just get Jesus born. <laughs> Y'all didn't see that movie, I know. Baby Jesus in a manger. That's uh, that race car driver's favorite Jesus, baby Jesus. Baby Jesus was in a manger during Augustus Caesar's life. But during Tiberius Caesar, baby Jesus is all grown up and he has a public ministry. And people are getting raised from the dead and healed. And people are thronging to this Jesus as a Messiah. Now that is a problem, isn't it? Because all of the Romans have taken oaths that there is only one God on earth. And his name at this time is Tiberius. But what a sharp contrast. The Son of God, the Son of God Tiberius, who ruled the world and in every way looked like something to be worshipped, except they keep dying. And Yeshua who died to be raised again in a body that would never die. So all of a the sudden there was a contrast. Hey, uh, Romans, your dude keeps dying. Ours is raised in a body who will never die. Now let me tell you a little bit about Ephesus. We could keep going through these Caesars. We start with Julius. We move to Augustus, then Tiberius. You remember the old movie Caligula? He was next. After Caligula came Claudius. After him, Nero. Nero's the guy that killed Paul. Supposed to have fiddled naked on his balcony while he watched Rome burn and blamed it on the Christians. We had a bad year after Nero died because Galba... Otho, Vitellus, and Vespasian all ruled. Constant war, constant turnover between these guys bringing universal peace in the cult of the emperor. Vespasian had a son named Titus. Titus is the guy that laid siege to Jerusalem, tore down its walls, threw every stone down from the temple, fulfilling Jesus' words, crushing it. Brings us to a guy named Domitian. Domitian was in power during the time period I'm going to tell you about in Ephesus. And Domitian, a historian named Ethelbert says, was the first of all of the emperors to truly understand this tiny little sect of Jews who are starting to call themselves followers of Yeshua, followers of Jesus the way, which, by the way, is what you see Christians called in the book of Acts. They're a threat to me. Domitian was so obsessed with his cult, with his worship, that people claiming to worship a God who was in a body who would never die was a threat to him. Now, Ephesus during his day had some half a million people. In the ancient world, that's a big city. It's a big city today. But in the ancient world, that is the New York City of its day. You remember, this is the same city where Paul in Acts 19 had preached powerfully about Jesus and he was almost torn limb from limb in a giant arena dedicated to a goddess named Artemis. Now, this is so fascinating. History, history will always open your eyes to the present age. He was almost torn limb from limb. The people chanted, Great is Diana, the Roman name, or Artemis, the Greek name, goddess of the Ephesians. Does anybody know anything about Diana Artemis? She was a virginal goddess with a celibate priesthood. What could that be? A virginal goddess with a celibate priesthood it was in that very same city in the year 431 that our church fathers met and declared Mary was the Queen of Heaven and Mother of God. I bet that's a coincidence. You can dig in the archaeological records and you find out that the very same statues dedicated to Artemis got scratched off and the words Mary put there and she started appearing with a child, but still a perpetual virgin. I'm sure it's all coincidence. 
This is the city where Paul fought to go back in and preach. He set up his young protege in this city and said, fight the good fight of faith. But in the last times, there'll be people who won't put up with sound doctrine. You all remember those words? He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in this city. That young man's name was Timothy. These are all books of the Bible, if that's not catching your attention. The early Christian historian Eusebius tells us that John spent his last years in Ephesus. Irenaeus, another church father, tells us that John frequently combated a group of people called the Nicolaitans. Some would say Nicolaitans. They taught certain principles. They abandoned the Older Testament. Ta-da! It's obsolete. No real need to emphasize the law anymore. They also practiced a separation between clergy and laity. Oh, isn't that sweet? They're the first people that came on the scene that began to teach pastors should be lifted up. Big, nice, high stages. Movie star-like pastors. While you guys out there were somehow lower and smaller. That was a practice of the Nicolaitans. The most important one, though, they were the first among the followers of Yeshua to start compromising with these two spiritual powers in Ephesus. Is it really such a big deal if we're eating things that are proclaiming honor to a virginal? I mean, it's just food. Is it really such a big deal if I go to the marketplace called the Algora and I have to worship the emperor Domitian as a king, as God, before I buy and sell? I mean, after all, God knows we need to live. Those are the kind of things the Nicolaitans began to teach. And where did they get the idea? They got the idea from the Apostle Paul, who is, without doubt, the finest theologian ever. Paul said everything is permissible, but not everything is profitable. They took his statement and ran with it in a direction he never intended it to go. Paul said all food in and of itself is clean. Yet Paul never intended for people to deny Jesus by participating in the culture that was around them. As we move on to Ephesus and the idolatry of the Nicolaitans, I want to paint a different picture for you. Ephesus was called the Neochorus, the world headquarters for the emperor Domitian. His father, by the way, named Vespasian, the Jews called the beast. You know why? He was a devil. That's what they called him. The devil was seen as a dragon or a beast in Jewish apocalyptic literature. And because Vespasian had been in the army and had fought against the Jews, and his son Titus did around the year 70, 66 to 70, the Jews began referring to Vespasian by the name the beast. And the beast happened to have been wounded with a headshot in a Judean battle. And yet he lived. Now, I know when I say a beast who was wounded mortally and yet lived, that doesn't remind you all of any writings in the Bible. Some of you got that. Vespasian declared his headquarters in Ephesus, his world headquarters where he would be worshipped, except his son was more of a devil than he was, and Domitian came and said, Dad's throne wasn't big enough. I am deity, and I'm going to build a throne with all 24 major characters of the Greek pantheon supporting my throne. The 24 gods of the Greeks would support the throne of Domitian. What do you think he was trying to show by that? I'm the God above all gods. And he sat in this place where Artemis had been worshipped before, but now she's secondary to this 
dare I say, papal-like figure. Oh, I did say that, didn't I? I didn't mean to say that. The Neocorus was the world headquarters for Domitian. Ephesus had a giant algora, which is Greek for a marketplace. And when you went to this marketplace, you got to a fountain, right? Because before you're going to go buy things, you're supposed to wash your hand. Y'all ever been in an eastern market where you're feeling things, you're picking up the textile goods, you're looking at the fish? Oh yeah, good fish. And you move on. At this fountain, it said Domitian is God. And when you washed there, then you presented yourself to the Domitian priest and they marked you with ashes on your forehead. Anybody ever lived in South Louisiana? They marked you with ashes on your forehead to show I have worshipped before I entered in him. In here now I can buy and sell. Hmm. How about that? Some facts about Domitian. He insisted on being addressed in Roman literature as my Lord and my God. Like I debt to meet with him, give him a personality test. By his decree, all imperial statues of him had to be made of gold. <laughs> wow. His letters began, and they've been preserved today. Your Lord and your God commands you. He had a royal choir. A choir. They followed him everywhere he went. Twenty-four of them. That number keeps coming up. Twenty-four uh, gods that he's above. Twenty-four people who are worshiping day and night. I know that doesn't remind you of any books of the Bible. Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor, glory, and power was what they sang to him. Wow. He had coins minted. You'll love this one. His coins, during his rule, minted, said, Lord of Lords, King of kings. Cruel beyond measure, a group of people, Nazameans, offended him. His official dictate from the, his office literally says, I cease, them to permit, I, I cease to permit them to live. And they were annihilated. Are we talking about somebody with a God complex? Can you imagine living in the day where this man is ruling the world? I ceased to permit them to exist. And he had them annihilated. In another instance where there was a suspected revolt, he brought in his closest advisors and he served them dinner. How nice, right? In front of their plates were tombstones with their names on them. little subtle reminder. little subtle reminder of who he was. He held their lives in his hands. Probably the most interesting thing about Domitian is his game stuff. Everybody loved the movie Gladiator, right? Did you know that the old man in that movie, Marcus Aurelius, was a real character? He lived around A.D. 140. Marcus Aurelius is credited with something, putting to death nearly 50,000 Christians a year in the Roman Colosseum. 50,000. You know, one of the deleted scenes from that movie showed Christians being given the skins of sheep and sent out to be devoured by animals. Now, we talked earlier about sin of cherub, somebody outside of your wall, somebody right there, nose to nose with you, chin to chin, wanting to fight. How obvious is that? But grow up in this society. I want you to think about this for a second before we get to the Domitian games. What Nick does is lend money. That's his job, basically. He's a banker. Everybody go see him right after the service. Bring your bag. He'll fill it up, right? <laughs> if Nick wants to participate in society in Ephesus, 
if he wants to go into the Algora and begin to make loans, he has a choice to make. Do I get those marks on my head or not? He has a choice to make even when he uses Roman money. The words of the apostles are ringing in his ears. Be in the world, but don't be of the world. He's trying to figure out what does that mean. And the Nicolaitans are there saying, Oh, hey, look, dude. It's okay. God knows you need to eat. Right? God knows you need to eat. No problem. But something inside of Nick is bothering him. And then Darnell, who makes dresses for a living. Not really. But she's thinking, How do I make dresses? I've got to buy textile goods, but what do I do? Can you imagine the conflict of conscience that would be going on? Something that is worth mentioning that I forgot. I said, well, I'll just uh, avoid the Al Gore, right? Not avoid Al Gore. That's not what I said. Avoid the Agora. <laughs> avoid the Agora. There were altars spread around Ephesus dedicated to the cult of Domitian that he showed up on his birthday. And when he showed up at these altars... Anybody within sight had to bow and proclaim Him God or they lost their life. problem in the ancient world, though, is you never know whether you'd make it there on His birthday or the day before or the day after or how that would work. Can you imagine how awkward that was for Christians? Could that be a difficult place to be a Christian, you think? One of the things that happens, though, that is unique about Christians is the more they're pushed and persecuted, the deeper the roots in their life go the deeper their faith becomes. I've been very fortunate in my life to have some therapists for friends. And I know from listening to them that if you do not use muscles, if you're an astronaut in space in a weightless environment, they begin to atrophy. We are made for a certain amount of resistance in our life. Just to walk down the street, you're resisting gravity. You are made for a certain amount of resistance and without it, we become lethargic, apathetic, weak. Sometimes what I think the devil couldn't accomplish through opposition, he's accomplished through acceptance. It doesn't cost us anything to be Christians in this day and time. So we throw it around like the word Republican or Democrat. You simply are or not. And then we have our own little brands. Don't you think some of our petty differences would melt away if you would get killed for going to Walmart? Do you think we really would be arguing about whether or dunk was important? We'd probably be just looking to see whether there was some fruit that proved you were a Christian. We probably did not care what the words were that some priest prayed over you to bring you to Jesus. We probably just would want to know that you were sincere, huh? Amazing. Domitian, at the beginning of these games, sat on his throne (laughs) that was on top of the 24 other gods. And he held a scroll in his right hand. The scroll indicated his worthiness to rule as an emperor. It was supposed to be symbolic of all of his rights and privileges as an emperor. And he would open his scroll as people would present themselves to him. And what would happen is because he ruled the world, people would come from different provinces to present themselves to the great Domitian on his throne. And he would begin to speak to them. And he would say, this I have for you and less positive things that they had done for him. And he would follow that by saying, yet I have this against you. Now, I know that's not ringing any bells in your ears either. Never heard of seven churches and Jesus saying these words to them. Now, if that's confusing you, wait. I promise I'll make it clear. 
He would finish that statement, yet this I have against you, if you don't fix it, I'm going to come and snuff you out because Domitian had a godlike complex. He liked to kill people. From then, being worshipped on top of his throne, the leaders of the world presenting themselves, hearing from him what they had done, good or bad, they moved to a section of worship. Domitian had priests, and his priests wore crowns with the divine name of Domitian on it. And all of the priests were dressed in 100% white. And all of the spectators were expected to wear white as well because they were divine being in Domitian's presence. The people were commanded to sing a song. Great are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive glory, honor, and power. Worthy are you to inherit the earth. Blah, 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 blah. The highlight of the games... I mean, the thing that they look forward to in the games, the climax of the games. Four different colored horses. Four different colors. In other words, a black one, a red one, a pale one, white one, would race. And when they were done, and everybody had seen the horse race, and enough people had died. By the way, this was kind of funny as you're reading all of these very serious things. He was the first emperor to ever let midgets be gladiators. I don't know why that was noteworthy, but <laughs> I guess if I had to be a gladiator, I'd want to fight with midgets, you know. They would go out to you. Yeah, I meant for you to laugh. That's okay, Matt. They would go out into the Colosseum who were littered with bodies, and a figure from Greek history would show up. And his name was Hades. He was synonymous with death. He would dress in a costume, and his job was to clear the arena of dead bodies. Can you imagine growing up in this day? Turn with me to Revelation 1. If you lived in Ephesus, the place where Paul was almost torn limb from limb, if you're looking for Revelation, you get to the back of your Bible and the last book in it. If you lived in Ephesus, you would be living in the place where Paul was almost torn limb from limb. You would be living in the place where Paul had charged Timothy you fight the good fight. You tell men not to teach those doctrines. Have you all read Second Timothy? You command men not to teach those things. There's even a place where Paul and Silas are standing on the shore in Ephesus where it says they warned them, they pleaded with them, they got on their knees on the beach and prayed. I'm telling you, men are going to rise up from your own number who look like sheep but are not. They're savage wolves and they will devour you. I'm just guessing that it's mere coincidence that this is where our first church councils happen under a Roman government. In the book of Revelation, starting in the first chapter, look at verse 19. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now. Write what is now and what will take place later. John was told to write down what was now and what must take place later. John was battling a group of people in Ephesus that were telling the people from within inside the walls of God, it's okay to worship the emperor. That's how you have to live in order to get food. It's okay. Put the law away. We don't really need that as our guide. Everything's free in Jesus. There are no rules. The same Paul that said everything's permissible also said not everything's profitable. They taught sexual immorality. 
It's funny how all cults go there, isn't it? All cults seem to go there. Something weird sexually. The base nature of man. There's a letter from Jesus to a church. And the church happens to be in Ephesus. Let's see what he says. It's in the second chapter, first verse. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds and your hard work and your perseverance. I thought none of those things were important to God. Deeds, work, perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. Why would Jesus be speaking in a manner that was like the Domitian games? Is John making this up? Is John not really seeing this vision and he's just writing in code? You'll find historians that say that. Saints, that's not the case. As we read this, you're going to find out John is writing a letter to seven present-day churches that he says it's good if you read this because they were facing something. They saw the Domitian games. They saw the cult of the emperor worship and they were torn in their hearts. Do we take his mark? Do we do the things that they do to survive? Or do we not? And John had seen something in the heavens. He said, oh yeah, Domitian sits on a throne and does this. Let me tell you what. We have a king who will call you to account for your deeds, whether good or bad. And he begins to tell the Ephesians about it. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. You remember that Domitian would say, hey, this I have for you, yet this I have against you. If you don't fix it, I will snuff you out. John is telling the church in his day, I have seen Jesus, and he demands obedience too. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of who? The Nicolaitans who had lived in Ephesus and were teaching the people to compromise. The Spirit of John was trying to rouse There needs to be something in you that says, I will not yield. I have to draw a line somewhere, and this is it. Have you never been pushed that far? Where you said, okay, that's enough. I'll I'll move. I'll move. I'll move. Wait a minute, buddy. That's as far as I'll go. He was there. He was at this place. There is a freedom in Christ that we love, that we dance in, excited about. I teach about it more than any church that you'll ever be around. I am not into legalism. I'm not into some just outward show of worship. And yet, there is a line somewhere in your spirit that you should not cross. Turn with me to Revelation 4. If you were a Christian living underground many of the days of your life because you couldn't worship above ground without being killed, if you were a Christian that was facing these altars... Every time you went from my house to Mandy's house, you had to pass an altar and you knew if the emperor was there on that day, if you didn't bow, you'd be killed. So you scurried along trying to hurry because you didn't want to be put in that position. You had kids. You had a family. You had people you loved. Would this be encouraging to you? Look at Revelation 4.1. 
After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. He told them what was happening on earth then. And now he's telling them what will happen at some point. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Can you imagine the expectancy as they're listening to this? In their very city there was a throne with a man-made God sitting on it who is proclaiming Himself the God above all gods and enforcing His rule at the point of death. There must have been a pause as they heard this. I saw a throne in the heavens and someone was sitting on it. At once I was in the Spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones. This is sounding an awful lot like what I see every day in my city. And seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes and lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were living creatures covered with eyes, front and back. Wow. And you thought Star Wars was weird. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes, all around, even under his wings. Day and night, what did they sing? Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and who was to come. Where had they heard this before? This is what was saying to Domitian on his throne. Whenever the living creatures would give glory and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever, the four elders would fall on Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever. They would lay their crowns before Him saying, You are worthy, Lord and our God. Where had they heard? before. That's how Domitian began his letters. To receive glory, honor, and power. That's what his priesthood sang to Domitian. You created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. Do you remember that Domitian put away an entire civilization of people with the words, I ceased to permit you to live? John's seeing an entirely different vision, and he's writing about it for churches in his day. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. What did the scroll represent in their day? The right to rule. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept because there was no one found worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll with the seven seals. John is telling a present-day church in his day, I have seen the real throne, and Domitian is not on it. Do not yield. It's one thing when Sennacherib faces you outside the wall. You can see his army, and you can see his. It's another when you grow in a culture all around you that is trying to force you everywhere you go to yield to its way of life. 
to its principles, and yet something has to rise up inside you. Some root buried below needs to begin to show fruit on the outside that says, I will not yield to the way of this world. I know He slapped me, but I will not slap Him back. I know they stole from me, but I will not steal from them. I know they hate me, but I will love them. Something inside of us has to say, I will not yield. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. And when He had taken it, the four living creatures and twenty-four elders fell face down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. If Clint and Carrie and Eric and Jennifer and Matt and Cassie were praying day and night because somebody was feeding our friends to lions, wouldn't you want to know that the God in heaven had your prayers in His hands? And they sang a new song. They didn't sing the song of Domitian. They didn't sing the songs written by Roman poets. They sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Augustus won't reign on the earth. Tiberius won't reign on the earth. Domitian will not reign on the earth. I have seen into the heavens God is on the throne by way of Jesus the Christ and you will reign. Can you imagine how moving this would be? This is why the book has said, read this in the churches. We spend all of our time arguing over whether it happened or will happen or is happening. We write books about it and call it eschatology. It had meaning for the people then. It had meaning for us now. And it will have meaning in the future. Something inside of you should be stirring saying, I will not yield because I have seen Him who is on the throne. What has been put in me, inside will bear fruit outside and that will be the sign that God delivers. This is the message of the Gospel. Ephesians 6 was written to the Ephesians. It said, take your stand. Put on a helmet that is salvation. Take up a breastplate that is righteousness in the kingdom. Take the sword of the Spirit. And he goes on and on and on. He says, so that you can take your stand. Friends, I'm not worried about sin a cherub in your life. You will take your stand and defeat Him because it's obvious. But slowly, all that is around us is a battle of attrition. It is wearing on us. It's eroding us. Suddenly, what you would not have laughed at, what you would not have thought was funny, you find yourself laughing at. What you never would have looked at or considered all of a sudden seems okay. In the 50s, a movie came, named Psycho came out. They couldn't even show a man stab a woman in the shower. It was so frightening, they showed the shadow. When Jaws came out in the 70s, I wouldn't get in my swimming pool in the backyard. I was so scared. But after generations of Freddy Kruegers and Sauls and God knows what else, you could show those old movies to kids in kindergarten and it wouldn't touch them because there's a battle of attrition going on all around us, somewhere in you. I'm not telling you where. I'm not putting a list of 14 points on a board for you. I'm telling you somewhere in you, you have to say, it stops here. It stops here. 
I'm not talking about being outwardly religious. I don't care what you do in the privacy of your own homes. I want to see fruit in your life. I don't care what rules you follow or don't follow. There simply must be a line that says, I've seen Him who is on the throne. And it stops here. For a minute, think about your struggles. I asked you about your lions and bears when this began. Are they financial? God, who doesn't have those? Are they in the relationship field? Who doesn't have those? What rises to the level of having to worship underground for six months out of the year? What would an Ephesian say to you when he saw you at Walmart? You can use a Visa card here? You are kidding me. Nobody's going to hurt us? Where do you go to church? What cave is it in? We go to church in a garage in a neighborhood. Everybody, you are kidding me. Hey, I heard about this World Wide Web thing. Y'all put things on the web. You don't have to hide? All of a sudden, your problems are looking pretty small, aren't they? You want to know the best thing about Domitian? He died. Forty years after he died, Ephesus was 90% Christian. You know why? Because people know sincerity when they see it. They also know hypocrisy when they see it. You go witness in a workplace, you know what you'll hear? Christians are hypocrites. Perhaps if somebody turned up the heat and it meant something to be a Christian, there would be more converts. Gandhi said it and it's true. I've examined your Christ, Him I love. It's His followers I have a problem with. I have the same problem. But when will we stand up and be real and say, I will not yield? I have one story for you and then we quit because I've preached way too long. And What's that phrase, Keith? As is my custom. That's right. It's about a little Jewish guy named Philip. Philip was in a day when there was an educational system that had the Bet-Sefer, house of the book. Philip was supposed to go to Bet-Sefer and learn to memorize five books of the Bible. Then he would move on to his next grade, which was Bet-Talmud. In Bet-Talmud, Philip was supposed to memorize all 39 books of the Old Testament. Only Philip couldn't. He tried and couldn't. Some of his peers did, but he couldn't. The next stage, had he been a college-type graduate, would have been Bet Talmud, where he would have learned to be just like a rabbi. He would have applied to a rabbi, said, I want to be like you, and the rabbi would have questioned Philip. But Philip couldn't hack it. He couldn't memorize everything he was supposed to memorize. So he was not worthy to go apply to a rabbi and be chosen by him. Philip went home and sat under a fig tree depressed, wanted to do something for God, but he just wasn't good enough. He couldn't make it through the religious school. And a rabbi named Yeshua, Hamashiach, who he had not applied to his school and apparently wasn't aware of his bad transcripts, came and said, Philip, I've seen you. I've examined you. And I don't see anything false in you, buddy. Come and follow me. I think you can be just like me. What an insult to the rest of the rabbis. They never would have lowered themselves. They would never would have taken a junior high dropout and done that. But Rabbi Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. I'll take everybody that got thrown out. I'll take the down and outers and do something with them. And you know that Philip, bless his heart, he was just stupid enough to believe. History records that he went to a city called Heropolis. 
and he took his wife and his sons. So for a moment, since we're talking about somebody who was stupid, who didn't make it through school and yet believed, we can say this is like Eric. And Philip's wife was much better looking than him. I only say that because now we're talking about me. Much better looking than it should have been him. And he goes to a city called Heropolis. And there's a gate outside of Heropolis, which is the Las Vegas of his day, complete with brothels and bars and all kinds of centers of worship. And the gate says that when you enter under it, you're proclaiming Domitian to be God. Philip says, I cannot walk under that gate. A long time ago, I found out that a rabbi named Yeshua was God. I've taken my stand and I can't yield. But he looks and his wife is there. And he says, they might kill me for this. They might kill her for it. And the wife turns and looks and sees little Judah and Gabe and Abby. says, and they could lose their lives for this. And he has a choice to make. If you were Philip, what would you do? Let me tell you what Philip did. He refused to go through that gate. And he probably didn't get caught the first time. But eventually they caught Philip going around the gate with his family because his heart would not let him walk through it. So they crucified his children in front of him. And his wife in front of him. And then crucified him written about in the Fox's Book of Martyrs and Philip Chaff's History of the Church and some other ancient books that we call the New Testament contain parts of Philip's story. And that would be a sad story if that's all there was. Except the Las Vegas of Philip's day, the poor dumb Jewish kid that just couldn't pass it, hack it, but Yeshua thought he could. The testimony of Philip so filled that city that within a few years of his death, it was 90% Christian. The world is looking for somebody to take their stand. The choice today that you have is will it be you or will you be just like the Nicolaitans? Easy come, easy go. I want to take a stand. Not in piety. Not in a show of religious valor. I want to take a stand that is based on my love for a true king. Somebody who showed me kindness that I can't disown in my actions. Y'all stand up, let's pray.